an indicative in such a troubling way about the inability of this individual to speak with some understanding of the implications of what he says. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Dig, The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, Jacobin Radio, The Bradcast, and Counterspin. It is this odd, I think, um, thing going on where people, where there's not a lot of public, um, debate, at least within mainstream politics over the war on terror. There might be a debate over one conflict or another, but the idea of actually ending the war on terror full stop is not discussed so much. But at the same time, it seems to me that, that the war on terror has in, in, in subtle but extremely powerful ways really transformed American politics in a way that I think really played a big role in making President Trump um, a possibility. Looking back to 2001, 2002, 2003, the war on terror, as as odd as it is to say this, was really guided by these these idealist utopian um, neo- principles held by neoconservatives that the U.S. was going to transform the world and and bring democracy to the mm-hmm. dark corners governed by dictatorship. And as everything really went to shit, um, I think this profound cynicism took hold when the neoconservative dream turned into a nightmare. I don't know if and, it's cynicism or just simply um, confusion leading to sort of an unwillingness to confront the reality that is. I mean, I want to agree with the point you made. As much as the, the neoconservatives in, in some senses were... Uh, crazy. Uh, but the one thing you can say in their favor is that they had a, they had a vision after 9-11. You described it. We're going to use overwhelming military power. We're going to transform large parts of the Islamic world. We're going to bring freedom and democracy. And once we've done that, we won't have to be worried about attack, being attacked from that quarter. That's what they thought that they would achieve by, in particular, through the war in Iraq. It was it was lunacy. But at least there was some logic uh, to the wars that they proposed. Once they failed, uh, that logic went away and has never been replaced. And and I and and again I think you are correct in 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 seeing in, in some at least partial way an explanation for Donald Trump's political success, because I mean, what 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 was Hillary Clinton's position on this ongoing war on terror? Uh, it, she certainly didn't offer a path to victory, to bringing the wars to an end. Her own record uh, as a quote unquote liberal interventionist uh, suggested that. Had she been elected president, we were going to get simply more of the same. The wars would simply continue. And Trump, the candidate, and I emphasize distinguishing him from Trump, the president, Trump, the candidate, 
was the guy who said out loud, no, it's all stupid. These, these wars are stupid. Elect me president, we're not going to have any more stupid wars. And that's not what he's done. Uh, but but I, I do believe that among the factors that persuaded large numbers of our fellow citizens to vote into office somebody who is manifestly unqualified to be president is because at least he had the wit to recognize that U.S. national security policy, particularly since 9-11, has gone off the rails. Uh, and he was willing to say that out loud. And he did so in a way that was more... Um, well, it was distinctly Trumpian, but it was also a anti a critique of the war that was nationalist rather than anti-imperialist in the sense that he said, well, we shouldn't have invaded Iraq, but since we did, we should have taken their oil. Yes, There's something right. very powerful yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That somehow or other, this needs to work to our benefit. Uh, again, and, and I should emphasize, it seems to me that Whatever, whether or not Trump believed any of that or understood any of that, uh, that is to say what he said as a candidate, that's not what we have gotten from President Trump. What we've gotten from President Trump is uh, aimlessness, you know, impulsiveness, decisions made or, or not made uh, without any reference to uh, principles. Again, draw the contrast between Trump and the neoconservatives. At least they could fashion an argument as to how there was some purpose to be served uh, by undertaking the exertions that they proposed from Trump, from President Trump, uh, we get no rationale whatsoever. And I don't believe we actually have anything that qualifies as a policy today. A listener, Sean McBride, um, called in a question that I'm going to summarize for you about Trump's approach, um, specifically with regard to Afghanistan, where apparently the potential profits um, from mining in that country have really captured his interests. What do you make of that? And do you think if he goes through with it, that that will provide an opportunity for anti-war activists to highlight how um, I, I, I don't, fundamentally I don't take, bankrupt? I don't take that seriously. I mean, I... I this is something that Trump, you know, read online or saw on a <laughs> briefing slide or whatever. It's something that captured his his fancy for a minute and a half. I mean, I mean it seems to me that one of the uh, trademarks of his presidency is this uh, grabbing hold of some little factoid uh, that then becomes a subject of a tweet uh, and then and therefore seems to be. Uh, an indication of an emergent policy. And a day and a half later, that's all forgotten. Uh, so I, I, I honestly don't know that I would take all that notion seriously. You, you recently wrote a piece in the London Review of Books about President Truman's uh, firing of um, General Douglas MacArthur and how that might serve to illuminate the tensions inherent in a democratic country running a global empire. Um, Trump obviously has packed his administration with generals and seems to have um, quite a soft spot for military brass, even just on a very basic personality, attitude, tough guy. Um, it's his type of, of, of masculinity. Um, what does his love affair with generals tell us 
or what should it tell us about about foreign policy, about his foreign policy? Well, I, I'm not sure I know. I mean, it, there, you described it well, I think, that for whatever peculiar reasons, he seems to have an affinity for for generals. Uh, you know, what what is it about generals that he likes? Um, their manner, their posture, their willingness to say yes or no, sir. Uh, I don't know. It's. I mean, again, it's. We compare Trump the candidate with Trump the the president, and we see contradictions. As a candidate, he famously claimed to know more than all the generals who he who were presiding over American wars, who he derided as incompetent. So, how you get from that to where we have? Uh, you know, Kelly and, and, and Mattis and McMaster, uh, being sort of the top dogs of the administration is, is somewhat, uh, baffling, uh, to me. Uh, I think among other things, it suggests an absence of any sensitivity to, uh, one of the core traditions of U.S. civil-military relations, which is to emphasize uh, civilian primacy. Now, as I suggested in that essay that you referred to, uh, the reality of civilian control tends to be uh, complicated. Uh, But there at least has been, and it's not a trivial thing, there at least has been lip service paid to the principle of civilian control by all parties uh, pretty consistently uh, since MacArthur's confrontation with Truman back during the Korean War. Again, underneath the surface, it can be ugly and dishonest, but on the surface, Everybody salutes and says, yes, the civilians are in charge, the generals advise, and then they follow orders. I fear uh, that installing generals in positions that usually, not always, uh, are reserved for civilians can, whether intentionally or not, uh, undermine that basic principle. And that would not be a good thing. I I don't believe that the appointments that Trump has made in and of themselves compromise the principle, but it's a step in the wrong direction. So how's the war going in uh, Iraq and Syria? I, I know that Trump said he was going to get really tough on ISIS. Uh, we'll share some of the, his thoughts about that in a second. Um, that's easy enough to say. Uh, but how about civilians? Well, first, now let's be fair. Let's talk about what Obama did when he was fighting the same war against ISIS in those two countries. 
Air Wars is a group that documents civilian deaths. The coalition forces and the U.S. forces have in the at certain times said they're part of the same team as us. They are helping to count civilian casualties. Obviously, our guys undercount because you know they they. So, for example, some of the ways that we undercount is we won't talk to any witnesses on the ground. Because if we did, they'd say, yeah, you killed a lot of civilians. That was an aunt. That was a grandmother. That was a baby. So they're like, ah, and a couple of the horrific instances, including hitting a school, we're like, oh, let's not talk to witnesses. But Air Wars does talk to witnesses. They have a more accurate count. So that this does not bode well for Obama. Air Wars researchers estimate that at least 2,300 civilians likely died from coalition strikes overseen by the Obama White House. Roughly 80 each month in Iraq and Syria. So if you say, where were you guys when that was happening? Well, we were right here and we were criticizing him for that throughout. Now, I know that there are no such things as a pristine war and there'll be many mistakes. I understand that. I, we should take all the effort in the world to preclude that. And one of the things that we used to criticize Obama about is in the places, not necessarily here, but in the places where they did signature strikes from drones, uh, that meant that they did not know who was on the receiving end of that bomb. They knew that, hey, we have some signatures there, like it might be a cell phone. Well, we think that cell phone was at some point connected to a bad guy. Let's go ahead and bomb it. And that led to a tremendous amount of mistakes. So that was under Obama. Um, and, and signature strikes were mainly done in other places, but obviously lots of mistakes in fighting ISIS with 80 a month civilians, not terrorists, civilians killed. Now, uh, Trump... Uh, promise to do worse. Let's take a look at what Trump promised during the campaign. I would worry knock about a the hell out of. I would. I like to do one thing at a time. I would knock the hell out of ISIS. Okay. I would hit them. I would hit them, Brian, so hard like they've never. What been about hit civilian before. casualties? What, what about the fact that we're targeting them and people are very concerned about collateral damage? I would do my best, absolute best. But we're That's fighting a very politically correct war. Yeah. Well, we see that and happening. The other thing is with the terrorists. You have to take out their families. When you get these terrorists, you have to take out their families. They. They care about their lives. Don't kid yourself. But they say they don't care about their lives. You have to take out their families. So he promised to murder civilians. And then he got elected. So did he murder more civilians? The answer is yes. Now he said terrorist families. Now when you're dropping a bomb, how do you know if it's a terrorist family or someone else's family? So for example, sometimes uh, under the Trump watch, We'll drop a bomb because all rules are now suspended, apparently. You'll get the details in a second. Um, because we saw, we think we saw an ISIS fighter on a rooftop two homes away, and we'll drop a bomb on the house that's not the one he was on, but the one that's two away, killing 11 people in that house. Those, the family killed in that house, they weren't terrorists, they were civilians. But Donald Trump doesn't care. He's like, what difference does it make? All right, let's prove it out. So is that the case? Let's look at the numbers. Maybe uh, maybe he's killing less civilians than Obama. Let's find out. As of July 13th, more than 2,200 additional civilians appear to have been killed by a coalition raid since Trump was inaugurated. Upwards of 360 per month or 12 or more civilians killed for every single day of his administration. So let me just put those numbers in context. The entire time that Obama was president, 2,300 civilians were killed in this conflict. Trump in the first six months has already killed 2,200 civilians, almost caught him. Um, and now let's look at uh, the numbers that they just outlined there. 
Under Obama, civilian casualties were 80 per month. Under Trump, they're 360 per month, four and a half times greater. Now, think about the earlier number. Uh, 12 or more civilians killed every single day of his administration. So you wake up today, and I know a lot of Americans look and go, oh my God, what did he tweet today? And sometimes it's very serious, sometimes it's light, and we laugh at what an idiot our president is. But every day that you wake up, understand that Trump has authorized through his actions 12 more innocent civilians killed in Syria and Iraq. Every day, the next day another 12, the next day another 12. That is, those are the numbers uh, that we've gotten. So how did we get here? Well, as the Daily Beast reports, it, uh, to give you one more sense of context for how bad it can be at any particular time. In one well-publicized incident in Mosul, the U.S. admits it was responsible for killing more than 100 civilians in a single strike during March. But hundreds more have died from coalition attacks and the chaos of fighting there. So uh, that one we admit. We say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, those numbers are accurate. We killed 100 at one time. Oops, <laughs> what difference does it make? We promised that we'd kill their families. There they are. I mean, I, maybe they're related. Who cares? Okay, uh, if they care, they're certainly not uh, showing any evidence that they do. So how do we get here? In one of his first moves as president, Trump ordered a new counter-ISIS plans to be drawn up. Second on his list of requests were recommended, quote, changes to any United States rules of engagement and other United States policy restrictions that exceed the requirements of international law regarding the use of force against ISIS. So what does that mean? Well, Daily Beast actually did a great job of summarizing. This is what they said. In short, Trump was demanding that the Pentagon take a fresh look at protections for civilians on the battlefield, except those specifically required by international law. That represented a major shift from decades of U.S. military doctrine, which has generally made central the protection of civilians in war. So, in other words, we have now changed the rules and said, that's it, have at it, Hoss. So don't worry about the protection of civilians. Do the bare minimum to protect civilians. Let's go get them. And if a lot of civilians die along the way, <laughs> they're not U.S. civilians, who cares? They're, they're grandma, grandpa's babies, whatever. Remember when Trump uh, pretended to care about the beautiful babies in Syria? When Assad, had, uh, we think, had killed him during uh, doing that uh Chemical strike. And he's like, oh, the beautiful babies, the beautiful babies. How about all the ones we're killing? Ah, who cares? Who cares? Let's go kill their families. Okay. Uh, Larry Lewis is a joint civilian casualty study lead analyst. He says, if we're losing opportunities to hit ISIS because we're nervous about civilian casualties, if it is not required by law, then uh, we're saying really look at it hard. Now, so he support, appears to be supporting Trump's policies, going, hey, listen, man, I mean, if I miss an opportunity to hit an ISIS guy a couple of houses away, because I was worried about 11 family members sitting there having dinner and with their kids, and I was concerned about their life, well, then I'm not going to be able to hit ISIS hard enough. And by the way, that will be persuasive to some right-wingers. They'll say, I mean, what are you going to do, man? I mean, you got to murder some families to get ISIS, right? I think there is another way, uh, and 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 certainly Obama, who I thought was doing way too much of it, uh, was not doing it anywhere near this degree because he was telling the generals, "Hey, be careful, because when you go to kill civilians, not only is it morally repugnant and what we accuse ISIS of doing, but it also is counterproductive." So 
A former State Department official is going to explain why it's counterproductive. He said, we have spent a long time advancing the idea that preventing civilian casualties is not only a moral imperative, it's also an operational one. These lessons come directly from our military's counterinsurgency experiences in Afghanistan and are endorsed by members of our military at some of the highest levels. But so far, we haven't seen or heard anything that shows that President Trump understands that. And in fact, of course, we've seen the opposite. And General Mattis, who's now the defense secretary, gave a speech saying that they are going to do an annihilation of ISIS. Look, if you could just annihilate ISIS, great, that's what we want you to do. Nobody's against that. But apparently, his directions were taking a little broader. The month after Mattis delivered the new plan, US-led forces likely killed more civilians than in the first 12 months of coalition strikes combined. So uh, the first month, more than the whole previous year, because they're like, yeah, civilians, what difference does it make? Look, it is in their actions they and their words. He says, we're gonna kill their families, then they go kill their families. They uh, more than quadruple the number of civilians killed. They can kill more civilians in one month than uh, coalition had done in a whole year. Uh, well, and then here's a CENTCOM spokesperson. Uh, was on the phone with the Hill. They had to walk this one back because it seemed a little too politically incorrect. But he identified himself as a spokesperson for CENTCOM and told a reporter this. President Trump said prior that once he gets in, he's going to kick the S-H-I-T out of the enemy. That was his promise. And that's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> well, but okay, show me body counts of ISIS fighters. Okay, But what we've got here is body counts of civilians. So that's not kicking the SHIT out of anything other than uh, innocent people. And and then what do you think their family members are going to do? Are they more likely to be on our side or their side? Uh, human rights groups that, uh, that are so concerned about what ISIS is doing to the local population. Uh, they've been interviewing these uh, the people who were able to escape places like Raqqa for years. And normally the things they go, oh, thank God I got rescued, I got out of there. Um, you know, the ISIS was killing our family, oppressing it, and all the horrors that they uh, talked about. And then they were running out of food and, and water. Now, when those same human rights groups talk to the survivors of Raqqa and other cities in the area, and especially in Iraq, uh, Raqqa's in Syria, Mosul's in Iraq, those same survivors uh, say, yeah, the starvation was bad, and oh my God, it was brutal under ISIS. But the worst thing was the American airstrikes. Because as we were about to leave, a bunch of our family members got blown up. They're dead now. So <laughs> it doesn't solve your problem. Sometimes it makes it worse. So how is this being enforced? And one last example. Lieutenant General Stephen J. Townsend says proudly, we shoot every boat we find. So if you think, well, that's every boat we find that's an enemy boat. Well, they had it coming. That's great. That's how we're talking about annihilation of ISIS. Well, let's find out what's actually happening. Air Wars has documented numerous civilians reported killed in recent weeks as they had attempted to flee Raqqa by way of the river. Shortly after Townsend's remarks, Raqqa's being silently slaughtered, that's another human rights group, reported that at least 27 people in Raqqa had recently been killed attempting to fetch water around the Euphrates. So if you don't use human judgment anymore, you don't use your mind and you don't use morality, and you say, just bomb every boat, bomb everyone by the river, who cares? 
Well, what are you going to do? You're going to bomb people getting water? You're going to bomb people fleeing? And yes, you're going to kill a lot more civilians. Yes, you're going to kill a lot more families, but they're not going to be terrorist families. They're people who were just trying to barely survive in Raqqa or get the hell out of Raqqa because they hate ISIS and want to run away from it. And as they were bravely trying to do that, the last thing they saw was a U.S. bomb dropping on their heads and killing everyone on board. So if this is your idea of getting tough with uh, uh, ISIS, okay. Uh, well, I guess you're comfortable and you think every morning that you get up, yes, another 12 innocent civilians killed today. Trump's in charge. But if you think, yes, there is a deep moral problem with that. Yes, we're supposed to be better than our enemies. And yes, this is not a smart strategy for how you defeat ISIS and gain the support of the local population. Well, then this is a very disconcerting news. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper. They're the sleep brand that created one perfect mattress that they sell directly to customers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. Instead, Casper offers free delivery in an impossibly small box to the U.S. and Canada and a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. All in all, you get to try an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price, risk-free. It's an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. It's breathable and sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature throughout the night. Plus, the same in-house design team behind the Casper mattress also developed an adaptive pillow and soft breathable sheets as well. As a special offer, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase and support this show by visiting casper.com best and using the offer code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You can also find that URL linked up on my website, but again, it's casper.com slash best, and use the offer code BEST at checkout for $50 off. Andrew Basevich, we'd like to get your response uh, uh, to uh, the escalating rhetoric on uh, North Korea and how you think this fits into uh, other comments that Trump has made and positions that his administration has taken uh, on other foreign policy issues confronting the U.S. Well, I'm struck by the fact that uh, six months into his administration, this really is the first uh, genuine national security crisis that uh, he's had to face. Uh, and his initial performance is uh, is very troubling. Uh, you know, when I, I think about that fire and fury statement, one of the things that strikes me is that... Um, I think I think it's a sort of a fundamental of diplomacy 101 or politics 101 that when a public figure makes a public statement, uh, it has to be done in a way that it will will play to multiple audiences. Uh, so it's not inappropriate, I think, uh, for the administration to issue warnings directed at the North Korean regime. But it's absolutely imperative that the, the warnings be voiced in such a way that they reassure uh, American allies in the region, uh, South Korea, Japan, 
should be voiced in a way that doesn't create panic uh, here at home. Uh, and on on that score, it seems to me that the president has has failed uh, uh, radically. Furthermore, uh, there's been a lot of hopeful commentary, uh, especially, I think, in the last uh, 10 days or so since General Kelly became the White House chief of staff, that the, the generals uh, that uh, President Trump has surrounded himself with, not only Kelly, but also McMaster and Mattis in the Pentagon, that they will be the voices of reason, that they will they will rein in this impulsive president. And if we are to look at the fire and fury statement, uh, that's pretty clear indication that that our president is not about to be reined in. And that also has to be very, very troubling. Um, in fact, one of the concerns of many, as he is admired in domestic problems at home—I mean, just yesterday, we also learned that actually two weeks ago, his former campaign manager, Manafort, has his, had his home raided uh, by the FBI, that as Trump feels increasingly encircled and under pressure, that he's going to look for an enemy abroad to divert attention to. Do you think that there could be this very strong connection, as he uses words like fire and fury, is what he's actually feeling here at home, but trying to project attention away from what he's facing here? Well, I think that's very plausible. And, and, and he would not be the first president in our history or the first uh, you know, major figure in, in world history to, to try to generate problems abroad in order to detract uh, attention from problems at home. But that said, you know, w one of the things that strikes me about uh, this uh, president is uh, his inability uh, to use the English language with any sort of precision or, or finesse. Uh, and, and I think this was evident in spades. Uh, in the fire and fury uh, statement, and and we, and we should emphasize, there, it, it was it was a, a threat of fire and fury, meaning necessarily meaning the use of nuclear weapons. In response to further threats, uh, and I think it's that the notion that threats voiced by another country could lead to preemptive nuclear attack by the United States of America. I think it's that that notion, which is embedded in that statement, uh, is what causes great concern and, and again, is what is so indicative and, and indicative in such a troubling way about the inability of this individual to, uh, to, to, to speak with some understanding of the implications of what he says. I mean, many people have commented, and I think accurately commented, uh, on the narcissism, which seems to be such a prominent characteristic of, of Trump's personality. And you, when you watch the video of him making that fire and fury a comment, uh, you, you, it's, it's, it's difficult to avoid thinking that, that the motivation of the moment is to make himself feel good. Uh, to 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 somehow demonstrate uh, that he's a tough guy, uh, that that he's standing up to what he perceives as a threat, and to somehow or other uh, derive some sense of personal satisfaction uh, 
from that from issuing that threat utterly oblivious as to the larger implications uh, and how that statement will will play to other audiences and that's that's got to be very troubling and again to emphasize the fact that 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 he still does these things despite the fact that he's now sur- surrounded by ostensibly more mature uh, figures uh, does not bode well uh, for how for how well this crisis is going to play out, but it doesn't bode well for how other crises, which he will inevitably encounter, how other uh, crises are going to play out. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you, listeners like Spencer K, a social justice warrior member, and Daniel B, a professional protester. So huge thanks to them for going above and beyond, but also thanks to all the other members and donors who help keep the show going. We're now set up on Patreon, where you can make monthly donations starting as low as a buck a month. Membership-level donations are a little bit higher, but they include a separate members podcast feed, which includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content. Our most recent bonus episode included a little bit of back-and-forth with members who had left voicemails, uh, you know, just like I do on the regular show. And then Amanda and I discussed her plan to go on a crash digital diet, dramatically changing the way that she interacts with her technology in the hopes of working smarter and feeling better across the board. And we're going to check back in with her after a week or two to see how that went. So to support our work and get instant access to all of that, either find Best of Left on Patreon or visit the Contributes tab at bestofleft.com. I'm very pleased to have Bruce Cummings with us. He teaches at the University of Chicago. He's the author of The Korean War and has several articles that you will probably want to look up. His latest article is A Murderous History of Korea, and that appears in the London Review of Books in May. And he has an op-ed that's going to be published by The Guardian in London, which right now has the title, A Tale Told by an Idiot. Today, we're going to analyze the dangerously escalating tensions between the United States and North Korea that's heightened by these early morning tweets from President Trump warning that the U.S. is locked and loaded. And should North Korea make any moves toward Guam? Well, that would be unwise. Bruce Cummings brings to us this crucial historical perspective that'll help us understand North Korea's development of a nuclear deterrent. And we should probably just say outright that the U.S. carpet bombed North Korea in the Korean War, and he calls Trump's callous and cavalier threats the most irresponsible thing that President Trump has ever said since becoming president, and that's really saying a lot. Well, with all that, Bruce Cummings, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. Trump has issued uh, one after another provocative warning of military action against North Korea, all within the space of about a week. And now, of course, he's saying that they're on the edge of military action. So how do you think that that's received there? And what do you think of these tweets? Well, I I think the North Korean leadership, which is not just Kim Jong-un, but a whole host of generals and, and elders who you know, or in their 70s and 80s, you see them standing with Kim Jong-un on, on the platform in Pyongyang, 
uh, these people went through the Korean War, which was for them a holocaust. Probably two million North Koreans died, and much of the dying came because of American bombing. The U.S. had control of the air basically for three years and leveled every North Korean city, leveled them to a, a degree greater than Japan and Germany's cities that were firebombed in World War II, according to official U.S. Air Force histories. Every North Korean knows this. Older North Koreans lost relatives during this bombing campaign. And so you're dealing with a, a wounded country, even though they constantly bluster and try to put on a very brave front, a, a really wounded country that went through a terrible trial. And now President Trump, in his, as you said, or as I said, callous and cavalier way, mm. is taunting them, taunting them like a, a bully and talking about the United States being a hyperpower, uh, not just a superpower. And, you know, here's a country that may be belligerent and very difficult and hard to understand, but it is just a small country. And so I think what President Trump is doing is just utterly reprehensible. It is the worst thing he's done since he became president. But of course, as you indicated, that's, you know, quite a long list of, right. of misbehavior on his part. But this, as you just said, Bruce Cummings, is really dangerous because it's nuclear bluster. It's not just off-the-cuff remarks that he made, say, at Mar-a-Lago or having dinner. This time it's far more serious. But it's backed, and I'm really glad that you began with some of the other people in power because the United States seems to caricature North Korea as a kind of family dynasty, which it is, but there's other people behind this dynasty. And you mentioned, I think it's in your article in the London Review of Books, that some of them, you know, are veterans or, or their children are veterans from that war and that this has been going on for a long time. And of course, it, it just raises the question, why? I mean, I'm glad you bring in this sense of history, but is this sort of like, okay, we're going to defeat a vanquished foe, a small country that's uh, hopelessly behind the times, and if it didn't have this deterrent, would have, you know, would be of little significance in the world? Well, well Trump is, I actually think he's a megalomaniac. I think he's mentally ill. Uh, he sees himself uh, at the center of everything and cannot even take uh, taunts from a minor power like North Korea. So that's just very dangerous. The New York Times quoted an anonymous uh, White House staffer yesterday or the day before saying that uh, Trump thinks his advisors uh, don't really understand Kim Jong-un the way that Trump does. And Trump thinks that Kim Jong-un likes to push people around. And so he's going to show him that here's somebody that can't be pushed around. It's a kind of grade school or barroom mentality. And as you said, you know, it's not as if we're talking about fistfights. We're talking about possible nuclear war. And it's just a kind of genocidal idea to threaten a small country with fire and fury. These were nuclear. He was talking about nuclear war, not just conventional war, and actually used a phrase that's very similar to what Harry Truman used in the hours after Hiroshima was hit by an atomic bomb and before Nagasaki was hit, he said basically the same words to the effect that the world has never seen the kind of fire and ruin that's going to descend on, on Japan. And to evoke that with another Asian country is just absolutely reprehensible. 
I couldn't help watching Trump's speech on Monday night, uh, described beforehand as the unveiling of a grand new strategy for the 16-year-old war, thinking, what the hell is new about any of what he is saying? Uh, which also seemed uh, remarkably vague to me, what he was saying as well. Uh, so first, big picture here, uh, Juan, what am I missing? What is new about Trump's new strategy for Afghanistan? Well, Trump's announced strategy is the Biden plan for Afghanistan as opposed to the Obama plan. What does that uh, when mean? Obama, I'm sorry? What does that mean? When Obama was elected, uh, he also had a study done of what should be done about Afghanistan. Uh, and the, he asked the Pentagon for three plans, a minimal one, a medium one, you know, it was Goldilocks and a, and a big one. Mm-hmm. And they hemmed and hawed for about nine months and put him on uh, under a lot of pressure because Congress was demanding to know what his policy was. And by the end of his first year, uh, all he had from the Pentagon was the big plan, which is obviously the one the Pentagon wanted, Petraeus and others. The 100,000 troops. The 100,000 troops. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but uh, associated with the 100,000 troops was Petraeus's big think, about what he called counterinsurgency. Uh, counterinsurgency uh, is addressing a guerrilla war uh, through political as well as military means. So they had this mantra of uh, you clear the Taliban out, uh, and then you come in and establish security, and you build up local institutions uh, so that they stay out. Uh, so clear, hold, and build uh, was the mantra, and uh, and then ultimately bring in you know the central government mm-hmm. uh, uh, to to keep things going. So you know all of this counterinsurgency thinking comes out of uh, the colonial period in the 20th century, and the British did this when they were uh, the colonial uh, masters of Mal- uh, of what was then called Malaya, Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Uh, against the communists, um, and, uh, and and counterinsurgency is kind of the great white whale of the of the of the army, uh, because uh, it actually only ever worked in Malaya, <laughs> <laughs> and, and but we keep hearing about it, you know, in Vietnam and 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 ever since it's all count in Iraq and, and Afghanistan was counterinsurgency was going to work, and it does it's you know the, actually the British had been in Malaya for. A hundred years, they knew the local languages, and the insurgency was only in among the Chinese community there, so you could isolate them. Uh, and there were peculiar reasons for which maybe they had some success there. But John Mearsheimer once pointed out the British aren't in Malaysia anymore either. So um, 
that was the big thing. Uh, and, and, and Biden was against it. Joe Biden, the, the then vice president, mm-hmm. wanted what was called, instead of counterinsurgency, uh, counterterrorism. Uh, which is much more narrow. You're not trying to clear out the Taliban from a place and substitute uh, an Afghan government presence. Uh, 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 General McChrystal at one point said we had a government in a box we could bring down from Kabul. And everybody was mystified as what in the world did he think he was talking about because governmental capacity in Kabul is very limited. Right. But in any case, uh, Biden thought, well, you know, if, 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 if somebody attacks something, go kill them. Right. Uh, you focus on the terrorists and, and their actions rather than on trying to rebuild the whole society the way Petraeus wanted to do. Uh, but Obama went with the counterinsurgency plan, and, and if you read the newspapers, you know, in 2011 and 2012, it was all about uh, these campaigns in, in these rural areas of uh, Helmand province and uh, Kandahar was going to be done and so forth. Needless to say, it all crashed and burned. Uh, there, there was no serious success of, of Petraeus's counterinsurgency uh, campaign. Uh, and, uh, and on the other hand, the situation in Afghanistan is not like Vietnam. There's no real danger that the Taliban are going to take over the government uh, and kick us out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have heavy weaponry. They don't have an air force. They don't have uh, really allies very much. Uh, the, the, the Indians don't want them there. The, the Russians don't want them there. You know, the, maybe behind the scenes uh, there are some Pakistani generals who kind of support them. But, you know, as long as there's somebody in the country who can go kill them if they look like they're going to take over something big, then they're stymied. Uh, they can have political influence, uh, but they're, they're just not going to be able to take over. However, if the U.S. got out, I don't imagine that the government in Kabul would last more than a year. Well, and, and I want to get to some of those details as far as why we're even still there and how, if ever, we get out. But I'm still trying to... I'm still trying to understand what it is that that Donald Trump is calling for that has not been tried before. Uh, never mind previous uh, in countries that have tried to uh, control Afghanistan, but just the the last two president U.S. presidents trying to uh, come up with some strategy there. Uh, the, I mean, the biggest thing that he he seemed to claim, all right, instead of nation building, we're going to kill terrorists. I think that's what you were uh, describing, Juan. But uh, yep. beyond that, I, the big change seemed to be that, well, we would not uh, or the schedule would be based on conditions rather than timetables. Well, that sounds a lot like George W. Bush's we'll stand down when the Afghanis stand up. No. Sure. Well, the, the hope is, you know, basically the United States has has become a colonial nation uh, in the 21st century. And uh, the, the hope of all colonial nations uh, who, who don't want to stay forever, some do, uh, is, is that ultimately there would be somebody in the country that you could hand the thing over to, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't collapse on you or come back to bite you. So, you know, that's what the British did in Kenya, uh, and it worked out all right in Kenya. Mm-hmm. But then there's failed decolonization, as, uh, and you keep getting drawn back into it because the local place that you had been ruling as a colonizer 
just doesn't have the resources or the capacity to stand up a, a, a new government. Whatever resources and capacity Afghanistan had to be an independent country were destroyed uh, from 1978 forward once the communists took over and then Reagan you know, conducted what I call the Reagan Jihad. He, he got the Muslim fundamentalists all together, including what became al-Qaeda, to kill the communists. Uh, since that time, since 1978 forward, the, the, the Afghanistan has been roiled and in turmoil. Uh, I figure a couple million people have been killed. Uh, you figure three wounded for every killed, so that would be six million wounded. Mm. A lot of people don't have uh, one of their feet because of landmines. The country has no real resources. Uh, it's very poorly educated, uh, highly rural, uh, very low incomes. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. So this is just not a place that, especially given what was done to it in the last 30 years, uh, that is very likely to stand up a government the way that Jomo Kenyatta did in Kenya so that the British could leave. So this is one of the reasons the U.S. is stuck there. Postmodern ways of slavery, new ways of being colonialist. Postmodern ways of slavery, new ways of being colonialist. On August 21st, Donald Trump gave what one Washington Post writer called a muscular speech on his plans for the U.S.'s long war in Afghanistan. Corporate media were critical of the lack of details. How many new troops would be sent? How long exactly until the U.S. annihilates all the terrorists? And media were critical of the messenger. Didn't what was often benignly described as continued U.S. presence in Afghanistan contradict Trump's earlier views? Less compelling for big media than what it means that this is Trump's war now was what the U.S.-led war has meant every day for Afghan citizens and what escalation is assured to mean. Writer and activist Phyllis Bennis directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Author most recently of Understanding ISIS and the New Global War on Terror, she's also co-author of Ending the U.S. War in Afghanistan, a primer. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Phyllis Bennis. Great to be with you, Janine. It isn't to say that there isn't critical commentary of various stripes. It's just that some Big things seem to be off the page. You could read multiple news reports, for example, that referred to the costs of the war in Afghanistan and occupation and that reckoned those costs in U.S. troop casualties or fatalities and in taxpayer dollars. I mean, what's missing from this sort of accounting? And then what do you make in general of media reaction to Trump's speech? Well, you know, Janine, one of the points in Trump's speech when he said at the very beginning that the American people are, quote, weary of war, he said they're weary of war without victory. What nobody is asking is, are the Afghans weary of war? There have been 67% more civilian casualties this year under Trump than the equivalent time of last year. Every year since the UN began keeping records back in 2009. Every year, the number of civilian casualties has gone up. Every year, it's been not only more civilians, 
but more children among the civilians. What's interesting, of course, is that nobody was talking after Trump's speech about his comparison with his so-called rival, John McCain, who just a couple of days before his speech gave his own speech. And McCain's strategy was not so different, ultimately, than Trump's. He also talked about sending more troops, sending more airstrikes, giving the military more power. But one of the things that McCain said explicitly that Trump only implied was that the goal has to do with the United States, preventing attacks on the U.S., preventing attacks on Americans. There is no goal of making life better for Afghans. And that's really critical. In a war that we have been many years now since anybody in power has claimed that we're waging this war for democracy or that we're waging this war to protect the women of Afghanistan. Remember when that used to be a big popular meme for this war? Laura Bush was big on this issue. A lot of people were that we're doing this for the women. As it turns out, after 16 years of U.S. military occupation, the conditions are so dire for ordinary Afghan civilians that Afghanistan is still the very worst country in the world for a child to be born and survive to her first birthday. And this is with 16 years of U.S. military engagement in the interest of protecting Afghan women. So the question of really what has changed, whose interest is this? is not being challenged in the press. It's not being asked enough. I think what we are seeing is that there's a willingness to be critical in the sense that right now in the mainstream press, there's a willingness to be critical about everything having to do with Trump. And that's all good. That's, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. What is missing from it is, one, the recognition of how this has always been a failed and failing war from October 7th, 2001, the day the war was launched. It's been wrong. It's been illegal under international law uh, and arguably illegal under today under U.S. law. You talked about an increase in civilian casualties under Trump, and I see media playing a role in kind of abetting and encouraging this idea that war is very presidential. And you have described Trump seeing deploying troops and sending bombs as almost first and foremost sending a message and that that has to do with the the increase in civilian casualties that that's kind of his that's his thing i think that's absolutely right i think that the question of why military force is being used has everything to do with sending the message that we as a country are strong and tough and i as the president am presidential it's an assertion of what he doesn't have on the basis of strategic thinking and ability to inspire people. Absent that, you send the Marines. That's sort of an old story. But it's extraordinary the level of increase in civilian casualties that are going on in U.S. wars all around the world. I was looking just this morning, Janine, looking at the Washington Post page one, page eight, page nine, page 10, headline after headline about the numbers of civilian casualties that are dying and being severely injured by U.S. airstrikes, whether it's in Mosul, the so-called liberation from ISIS that the U.S. was responsible for in Iraq, in Raqqa, in Syria, 
where civilians are now being killed in huge numbers, again, by U.S. airstrikes, supposedly aimed at ISIS. In Yemen, where the U.S.-backed Saudi coalition is bombing and bombing and bombing and killing civilians. And interestingly, in that same context, in Charlottesville, where now the United Nations is actually criticizing the United States for racist violence. So what we're seeing is a real pattern of an increased level of civilian casualties and a decreased level of concern from those in power to stop it. That's a very dangerous reality. Well, let me bring you back to another question about perspective. Um, in reading about Trump's reaction to Trump's speech, I found a piece in Foreign Policy that uh, included the expression, like many Americans, I struggle with what the United States should do in Afghanistan. The answers are not obvious and the options are never satisfying. And I was thinking, you know, what I struggle with is the presumption that it's the right of every American to, you know, puzzle out what those people over there ought to do with their country and, and right. then make them do it. You know, <laughs> um, the, the, the commentator in this case is a former DOD employee, but her take isn't really that unusual. International law appears to be just kind of a, a quaint idea for much of the press. No, that's true. Of course, that was the language that the Bush administration memorably used for both the Geneva Conventions and international law, that it was quaint and it was irrelevant. And that certainly is the case. I, I will cut a tiny bit of slack to the, the author that you quoted and to others in this country who, in a serious way, think about what should U.S. policy be, what are the options, only because... After 16 years of military destruction that followed decades of military attacks in, throughout the 1980s when Afghanistan was a major venue for the hot part of the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were fighting it out in Afghanistan. Of course, some of the people that we were supporting at that time were named Osama bin Laden, and they were the ones who became al-Qaeda later, so that was very much a blowback issue. But with that history, I think that we do have to recognize that we owe a great debt to the people of Afghanistan. We have destroyed that country far more than it would have been destroyed internally. So we do owe something to help them rebuild. The really difficult question is, how do we make good on that? We don't owe military occupation. We don't owe the imposition, arming, paying of a corrupt leader who has little to no local support and the creation of a kind of government that has nothing to do with Afghan culture, nothing to do with the history of how Afghans governed themselves over the years when they were not being occupied. So I think that it is right to say we should think about it. What's not right is exactly the question that you raise. It's not our right to decide how they should live now, what, how they should rebuild their country. We have to figure out a way to make good on our obligations, which has to do with money, it has to do with diplomatic support, it does not include military occupation. Figuring out how to do that is no easy task. And at this moment, when the State Department has been stripped of so many uh, diplomats, there's not even an ambassador to Afghanistan at the moment, the office 
dealing with Afghanistan and Pakistan has simply been closed, shut down, the staff sent somewhere else. That means there are no diplomats available who have the skills and the information to make recommendations that would be taken seriously. This is what happens when you cut the State Department budget by 30% and turn those billions of dollars over to the, to the Pentagon. You don't have diplomats, you, you send the Marines. You know, this is the challenge that we're now facing. The only option we have, if you, if you talk to people in Washington, is to send the military because there's no resources anywhere else. So this is a huge challenge for what U.S. foreign policy can and must change. I certainly, uh, I certainly agree, and I, I see the desire to use U.S. power for good. Doesn't happen very often. But I guess I also, I just see the desire to use U.S. power, and the the presumption that goes with that. It seems sometimes that kind of a complete frictionless acceptance of U.S. exceptionalism is just kind of the price of admission for foreign policy debate in the media. It's absolutely right. No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. The assumption is that a military engagement is the first option. Despite all the language about there is no military solution, we act as if there is only a military solution. And that's true in Afghanistan. It's true in Iraq. It's true in Syria. It's true in Libya. It's true all over the world. And this is a huge problem. There is no easy answer except to start with ending the military part, get the troops out. That's not the end game. That's step one. That's step one. You know, you remember, Janine, during the early years of the Iraq war, Colin Powell used to use this pottery barn analogy, we broke it, we fix it. And I always thought that it was the wrong analogy, that the real analogy is the bull in the china shop. What do you do when the bull gets loose in the china shop and breaks all the cups? You don't ask the bull to fix the cups. You get the bull the hell out of the china shop and write a check for the damage. That's step one. That's not step end, but that's step one. That's what we need to be doing in Afghanistan. Then we need to figure out how to help rebuild in a way that's not based on military force. That's not something the U.S. has ever been very good at. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Dig, talking with Andrew Basevich about the neoconservative groundwork that has led us to the geopolitical place we find ourselves now. The Young Turks compared the civilian death toll under Obama to the new policies implemented by Trump. Democracy Now! spoke with Andrew Basevich, this time about Trump's handling of North Korea. Jacobin Radio spoke with Bruce Cummings to get a historical perspective on Trump's threats against North Korea. The broadcast spoke with Middle East expert Juan Cole about why the U.S. is stuck in Africa. Afghanistan. And finally, we just heard Counterspin talking with Phyllis Bennis about the questions we don't even consider when considering what to do in Afghanistan. Thanks to the volunteer listener David L. for his contribution to today's episode. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. Uh, This is Nick from California. I just found it very challenging, the assertion that the ACLU is to be blamed for what happened in Charlottesville. I think that the ACLU stands up for people's rights to speak, and part of the assumption when you stand up for someone's rights to speak is that they are not going to abuse that privilege. 
they're not going to threaten people. They're not going to start a riot. They're not going to burn down the city that they're in. I think it was a caller actually brought up the fact that free speech means the government can't tell you you can't speak. You know, the government can't stop you from speaking, but you can be punished for the things you say after the fact. It is reactive. So, I mean, I think that if the ACLU was still standing up for the, the white supremacist who, who ran people over in his car after the fact, they were, <laughs> that would be reprehensible. But simply saying that, you know, we have to uh, give hateful idiots the assumption that they are going to go and lawfully state their idiotic views, I think them doing that and allowing for that to happen doesn't then make them morally culpable if the hateful idiots then go and actually do terrible things, which they did. So I just, I find that to be kind of challenging to suggest. Again, maybe it's because I'm an ACLU member. And uh, uh, so I, I, again, I just have trouble with that and um, would be interesting to hear more because I guess I'm just not convinced that it's their fault that the people that they stood up for, even if they are odious, then went on to abuse their privileges and do reprehensible things. All right, Jay, thanks for the podcast. Stay awesome. Bye-bye. Hi, Jay. This is Catherine from Bloomington, Illinois. I hope you have one more chance to speak about the First Amendment and hate speech. Um, I am probably about Tom Hartman's age or maybe a little younger, and I feel that my viewpoint has changed similarly to his over the many years. And I, I think there should be some restriction on, on some of this hate, hate speech. I am a physician and I do remember in medical school there were, um, the standard was what would affect a the average 70 kilogram male, um, every pharmaceutical, whatever. And it was about that time that I heard about a woman named Catherine McKinnon, who is an attorney, she has a book called Are Women Human? and another one called Only Words. And I became aware that the average standard of uh, fighting words, Tom Hartman mentioned fighting words, is not what would, um, you know, in street harassment wouldn't be uh, considered harassment because the standard was what a reasonable male would react violently to, not the, a reasonable female. So I was astounded at that. And uh, that was illuminating to me that the law was so behind in what they would consider uh, hate speech or harassment uh, because women were not judged really the standard. The other thing to mention is, uh, you know, how many times does Bill O'Reilly get to say Tiller the baby killer, Tiller the baby killer, and have Tiller be killed? Or Glenn Beck say something about the Tides Foundation, have somebody try to go to their facility and shoot and kill everybody. How about Gamergate? When is this harassment of, of people going to stop? It, it's not free speech anymore, it's inciting violence. And that's my two cents for today. Thanks, Jay. Love your show. Bye-bye.
Yeah, hi, Jay. This is Craig from Ohio. There was one point I wanted to raise that I didn't get a chance yesterday, and that is the difference between the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. And I think on the Second Amendment, uh, the right to bear arms, that is where we have uh, more fertile ground to oppose the ability of right-wingers and white supremacists to show up in public fully armed, you know, with a, a small arsenal. And there's several reasons for that. Uh, one, there's a long history of gun restrictions in this country for the first two centuries, in fact, of our country. Courts held that there was not an unlimited right to firearms. We already restrict firearms in numerous uh, locations and gatherings now. Uh, you can't bring weaponry to a uh, perimeter within uh, national conventions, so there's a, there's a precedent there. And it is not uh, something that we on the left have traditionally been associated with, the, you know, the, the gun argument. So it's an area where we can push back. The other thing is the First and Second Amendments are in conflict. So if a speaker wants to feel free to express their opinions in public, to be intimidated by gangs or even an individual uh, heavily armed with weaponry restricts the freedom of someone to speak uh, openly and honestly in public. So I would just argue that if we want to find uh, a place to push back, we should be holding the line on restricting the ability of right-wingers to march around in public fully and heavily armed. Again, love the show, as always, and talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I'm glad that we heard from Craig and that he brought up the issue of the Second Amendment because I, I think almost simultaneous to when I posted my episode about specifically free speech in conflict with dealing with fascists, uh, this show politically reactive, who I, you know, feature with some regularity had a follow-up conversation of their own about free speech. So I didn't hear that episode of theirs until after mine was already made, but they had on the same ACLU lawyer who's been doing all of the interviews in response to Charlottesville, but in every other interview that I saw her on, she was constrained to five minutes and she was on network television or cable or whatever, and she came across as sort of stilted, sort of just like I have to read the script that the ACLU has given me. And not that she didn't believe it, but that she just kind of had to go through the motions of getting her point across and answering the questions as well as she could. But on Politically Reactive, she was given more time. They had a much more in-depth conversation. A lot of her humanity came through a lot of her personality, you know, like her, her, uh, you know, personal perspectives on the issue came through her history came through. So I highly recommend you check out that episode of politically reactive. Um, you know, go ahead and listen to the whole thing. It's from August 24th, but in response to, uh, you know, Craig and the second amendment, I just want to play this one clip from that uh, segment because even though, 
she is defending the ACLU and defending the First Amendment and, and their decision to represent Nazis in this case, she comes to the same conclusion Craig does. So have a listen. Hate speech is not a defined term, right? It, yeah. It's amorphous by its very definition, yeah. right? What you think is hate speech. Yes. I can promise you, Kamal. I mean, I'm sure I wish I had like Google so I could like make sure I was right. But yeah. I'm pretty sure if you Google, you know, Southern law enforcement hate speech, first thing you're going to get is a Black Lives Matter hit, right? Yes. I mean, and, and that yeah. is that that's the bottom line of why I do this work is that I actually believe and I've seen it viscerally that we give the government more power to decide who's hateful and what's hateful. Um, we know how that power is going to be used. And it was used, right, against black activists in the civil rights era. It's not theoretical. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we could go into court and get an emergency injunction for Martin Luther King Jr., right, which we did, mm -hmm. is because we'd helped establish those precedents against legitimately hateful speech, speech we too thought was hateful, yeah, right? Yeah. But then when we're trying to defend people who are trying to challenge the status quo, um, the government's always going to think those people are hateful too. So so that that's where I'm still a true believer, yeah. right? I think – I think what's harder is when people say, and they've been saying this all week, white supremacy is inherently violent, right? Yeah. Not that it's just hateful, yeah. but that a white nationalist mindset, right, if you get your way, um, presumably leads to some form of ethnic cleansing to get to the ethno state, I assume, right? Yes, I haven't yeah, really thought through yeah. the logistics, fortunately, yeah. but but I think it's fair to assume there's violence in there. and. Um, you know, again, that's where I would say that unless and until you get to that line of inciting violence, and, and I think reasonable people can disagree about whether or not it happened in Charlottesville, um, but it was certainly really close. Um, but unless and until you get to that line. Reasonable can disagree about what? Part? But whether or not kind of a particular white supremacist rally is incitement as a legal matter, that it reaches the definition that it's unlawful speech, right? Yeah. And, and by the way, I don't think I want an ethnostate alone. Right. It is unprotected, just like let's go punch Nazis alone. Yeah. Right. Is yeah. is un, is protected. And but, thank yeah. God it is. Right. Yeah. But when you are armed to the teeth. Yes. Right. And getting in someone's face and you've got your hand on your weapon and you're saying, I don't believe in your right to exist, that 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 all together, that looks a lot more like yeah. incitement on the and, ground. And right? I would say, I think, yes. And you're dressed in military fatigues. Yeah. Which is confusing to people who are there like, oh, here's the military or here's the law enforcement. Yeah. And. And then the, the police are there. This is what I think it's such a, it's a comp, it's just such a, it's a, it's a, you know, I'm come from, my people come from Alabama. So I think about things in terms of gumbo a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like these things aren't, you know, the, the crab and gumbo is not separate from the shrimp and gumbo, not, not separate from the, the beef and gumbo. So the fact is, is that free speech, yes. But then if you're a person of color in Charlottesville and, you know, like people of color around the country, don't know that the police always have our back. Of course not. Yeah. And of so not. you go, okay, so the ACLU fought for this guy's right to say he wants a white ethno state and he's got a gun and I'm here because I want to say I don't want a white ethno state. But then the cops are over here not doing anything yeah. while I feel like violence is about to erupt. Well, let me point out the enemy in this narrative, okay? Yeah. It's the Second Amendment. And I'm like fine getting hate mail from the NRA, but <laughs> it is not just on by a, saying that it's already it's they've fine. already started writing it's it. Fine, yeah. But not on my watch. OK, at least yeah. not on my watch at the ACLU. Are we going to allow the Second Amendment to eclipse the first? Are we going to scapegoat the first? Why are you scared in that scenario? Because the dude's got a gun. Yeah. Why are the cops not going to intervene apart from structural white supremacy that has invaded our police forces? Right. The other reason. Yeah. The other reason might be. They're terrified because they're outgunned, right? Mm -hmm. And we heard that on the ground in Charlottesville, that there were police that seemed shy about intervening. They were – I don't know if you watched the Vice documentary, but but yeah. there – um, you know, at one point, 
this disgusting, loathsome white supremacist calls the police and basically says, if you guys don't get over here, I'm sending in a paramilitary troop to get him out. Right. He's negotiating with the yeah. cops as two comparable firepower entities. Right. Yeah. That is the problem. Yeah. The Supreme Court delineated, decided that the Second Amendment was an individual right, you know, a mm-hmm. dozen years ago. Um, and there's been almost no follow-up guidance from the federal courts about how that interacts with their other cherished freedoms. And I just, it's not right to me that we look at Charlottesville, right? A situation where there is an armed confrontation and where someone decided to murder someone exercising their First Amendment rights with a car and say the problem is the First Amendment. I I cannot buy that solution. I I don't think the First Amendment is the problem. It's the toxic mix of the first and the second. And the fact that the second has not been reined in by the courts means that we're all at risk of having our other liberties completely obliterated in service of this gun god. And I, for one, I don't think we should tolerate that. So obviously, I don't have to tell you, this is a complicated issue. I'm still working my own way through it, struggling with the the various sides of the issue. What I insist on is having a complicated and nuanced view of it. What I cannot stand is the people who claim that it's simple and that you can really just boil it down to whatever the side their principle comes down on. They say, well, that's just as simple as it is and you don't need to go any further. And that makes absolutely no sense to me. There are issues of justice and fairness. There are issues of principle, but there are also reasonable disagreements people can have about how to create the best of all possible societies, which should be the point of humanity and government and law is to create the best possible society. But wrapped into that can't just be principle or, well, we've always done it this way, so we need to maintain that. It has to go deeper. And wrapped into that also has to be considered unintended consequences and strategies. You can't, you know, making a law saying that hate speech is illegal won't necessarily have the outcome you want it to have. So all of those things are really important to consider, and I am considering them. I am reading more and listening more, and I'm sure we'll come back to this topic soon. If you have any more thoughts on the topic, please share them. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter, and helping share all of the great content we're pushing out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. See